J.D. Greer, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, tells a story about boarding a plane when he was just out of college. He walks up to this plane, and it's one of those, it's one of those flights that's the last out of the, of the terminal at night. You know what I'm saying? The airport is kind of empty at that point in time. And he walks up, and it's a very small uh, flight. It's a flight from Fort Lauderdale to Charlotte. Not a lot of people on it. In fact, he walks up to the gate, and he sees two people there. One, he said, he describes as a very old man who looked to be about 200 years old. And the other was a, um, a girl who was Chilean in her early 20s. And immediately he prayed about it and felt led to sit next to the Chilean girl. He sits next to the Chilean girl and starts to talk to her. He finds out that she's actually a student at Harvard University. He says since he went to Campbell University, the Harvard of the South, they had an instant connection. (laughs) At that point, he begins to tell her about how Jesus changed his life and how he wants to be a missionary to go to uh, uh, people in um, in the Middle East and tell them about Jesus and and she listened very intently and and very respectfully with these big brown eyes and and as she listened he was she was listening and he was planning their marriage. He knew that in order to marry this gal though he would need to ask her the question and so as they are on this flight he asked um, you know Berta. Will you give your life to Jesus? Will you follow Jesus? And without much thought, she looked at him and said, No. You know, I'm glad that that has worked for you and that's been good for you, but that never really worked for me. I'm so happy that you have found peace in Jesus, but I relate to my God in a different way. And he says, but Berta, this isn't my way. This is Jesus's way. And she responds, surely you're not saying that this way that you have chosen is the only way to God. You're not trying to tell me that if I don't accept Jesus the way that you have, I won't go to heaven, are you? She says, that that must be the most arrogant, closed-minded thing I've ever heard. I can't believe anyone today would be so bigoted as to think that there is only one way to God. What kind of God is that? That's not a God I want to know. Well, at that point, he suspected that the wedding was off. (laughs) And Berta's question, though, her response, uh, it's quite natural today. Uh, It's it's really common I mean, the idea that for someone to claim that their religion, one of the biggest problems that people have with with religion in general, but particularly in, with Christianity, is this idea that 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 you have or we have or one religion has the truth and other religions don't have the truth, that they have uh, access or claims on or ways to God that other people don't have. I mean, this is something that is considered arrogant. She said, close-minded, bigoted. And yet, this is the statement that we find right here in Isaiah 46. Look at verse 9. 
God says, Isaiah's God, Israel's God says to his people, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. In other words, I am the only God and I am uniquely God. Now that claim, if it's at all true, and I believe it is, we must come to terms with the fact that this strikes at the heart of a lot of our modern sensibilities. Because it means that a lot of things that we take as red are not true. And I want to talk about three implications, three things that we take as red that this actually causes us to have to rethink. The first is this. If if this is the only God and the unique God, then it means that all religions are not the same. If you turn to the very beginning of this chapter, chapter 46, it actually opens with this polemic against the Babylonian religions and their gods. In verse 1, it talks about Bel and Nebo. Now, you probably don't know who Bel and Nebo are. It sounds like two characters that could become a great children's story, but it's not. It's actually two of the most famous gods in Babylonian culture. And verse 2 says quite explicitly that they cannot save. They cannot save the burden. Now, in other words, what Isaiah is saying is that these religions can't save and your religion, your God can save. Now, that means that all religions are not the same on Isaiah's terms. What strikes us is very arrogant and rude and bigoted, disrespectful even. It's become popular, especially since the, the 60s, to say that all religions are the same, that they are equally true and they hold an equal amount of beauty. And this idea actually goes all the way back to the poet William Blake. You remember studying him in high school? Uh, William Blake wrote a little pamphlet and said, all religions are one. And he was basically saying that all religions are valid. The popular metaphor that's become very popular through um, the religious... Um, Professor of Religious Studies, uh, Houston Smith, even if you haven't read Houston Smith, you know this metaphor, and it's that uh, basically all the religions of the world are like paths up a mountain, and God is at the top, and as Houston Smith says, you've heard this, right? And as Houston Smith says, at the top, the trails all converge. Now, it feels humble as opposed to arrogant. I mean, isn't it arrogant to say your path is the only path and the only way? And it feels respectful as opposed to disrespectful. I mean, to say that somebody else is wrong. Isn't that rude and disrespectful? And it, it seems to make sense, but does it really make sense? There's another professor of religious studies named Stephen Prothrow. He teaches at the University of Boston. He's not a Christian. A couple of years ago, he wrote a very important book, though, entitled... God is not one. And listen to the subtitle. The eight rival religions that run the world and why their differences matter. And what Prothero basically says is that all gods are not the same. And it actually does not do uh, us any good to say that they are. 
He says, while all God, the, the thing about all religions is they all ask the same question, and that is this, or they all recognize the common fact that something is wrong with the world. That the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And we all recognize that, don't we? The world is not the way it's supposed to be. Unless you're a naturalistic materialist, and then you actually are forced to say that the world is the way it's supposed to be. But I know that deep down, existentially, that just doesn't feel very right, does it? But anyway, so the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And that's, that's basically the starting point of all religions. But the problem is, is that they all answer that question in radically different ways and therefore provide radically different solutions. So, as Prothero says, what the world religions share is not so much the finish line, the top of the mountain, as the starting point. They begin with this simple observation, something's wrong with the world. But the religions of the world do not teach the same doctrines, they do not perform the same rituals, and they do not share the same goals. So they're not saying the same thing. And what I would suggest to you is, therefore, if we just start saying they're all saying the same thing and they're all really the same, that's actually not really respectful. It's tone deaf. I mean, think about it. Let's just say you really, really, really like stinky cheese like me. And let's say you're married to someone who really, really doesn't like stinky cheese like my wife. And let's say that you say, you know... (laughs) I went on to the dating app and it, and it connected us and we were like 98% overlap. So I know that we share all the same vision, all the same goals. We like all the same things. Stinky cheese is awesome. So I know you like stinky cheese. And so you keep buying stinky cheese and put it in front of your, your spouse that's told you over and over again that they don't like stinky cheese. And you keep going, oh, but I know you like this because it's awesome. And then you put it in their salad and you put it on their sandwiches and all this other stuff. I mean, at that point, are they going to think that you are respecting them? Like you've heard them. No. It's actually not respectful to say that all religions are the same and to not take their claim seriously. I would say that that's an act of disrespect and it, and it kills conversation. So it, it's not respectful. And, and by the way, we don't do this with anything else in the world. I mean, we don't sit here and say... Oh, rival economic systems that think that different problems are in the world, uh, like capitalism and communism, well, they're all just the same. We don't think that different, we don't say that different uh, political parties that see different problems and assess different problems in the world and different solutions like Republicans and Democrats, we don't say, well, it's really just all the same. Uh, that's not what we do. See, it's, it's not just that it's disrespectful, it's illogical. Because uh, let me ask the question, when you get to the top of that mountain, which God is it that's there? What's that God like? Buddhists believe in no God. Hindus believe in thousands. Is this God personal or impersonal? One or many? If it's one, is it Trinity. See, the triune God of the Bible is absolutely unique. And it's not respectful to paper over the deep differences that different religions and different philosophies on life have. It's actually illogical. 
But isn't it arrogant to say that that your way is right? I mean, how can you say that that your way is the only way to God and has the truth? But but let me ask you a question. How can you say that all religions lead to God? See, who can say that all the past reach the top of the mountain and go to the same point? Someone who's at the top of the mountain, who's been down all the paths. So you're making a claim to superiority and truth there, right? And by the way, if if all the religions are the same and it's the same God at the top of all the mountains, then that means that that God is unlike the gods of any of the religions. And it means that that God does not judge us for what we believe about him. And that is a truth claim about God that you're saying is absolute. Well, that sounds kind of arrogant. How is that any less arrogant than anyone else saying that their way is right? See, you're also saying that your way is right. So it is the appearance of... It's the appearance of humility, but it's false humility. Because what if, what if there is a unique God? And what if this unique God really is knowable? In, verses, in verse 1, we, we read this polemic about the uniqueness of Israel's God against the other Religions. It says that Bel and Nebo, they stoop low in humiliation. Bel stoops down, and, uh, Bel bows down, and Nebo stoops. The idea is that these gods have been brought low. And the idols which represent these gods, they have been taken from their high places, and they are carried off into captivity. Look at verse 2. They stoop, they bow down together, and they cannot save the burden but must themselves go into captivity. They cannot save the burden, but they themselves become a burden because they weigh down not only you, but also your beast. See, the claim that Isaiah is making is that all these other religions, the Babylonian religion and all other religions included, that their gods, they do not lighten your load. They only make it heavier. They don't bring you rest, they just exhaust you. And it doesn't matter whether it's the seven pillars, whether it's, whether it's going through the different yogi steps. It's all techniques that will weigh you down. And it's not just capital R religion that does this to us, by the way. We have become what... David's all calls um, uh, a secularosity. Basically, he says that we have become religious with secular things. That we pursue, we pursue secular things religiously to be enough. And so, therefore, we have, we have our standards that we set that we will be enough. And so we pursue parenting religiously. We pursue our food and treat it religiously. And, and we, we treat our work religiously. And we treat romantic love religiously. And at the end of it, where are we? Exhausted. We are exhausted. It does not save us. We do not feel lighter. That was a really funny... Um, 
there was a funny uh, article that talked about even the exhaustion of looking nonchalant. And it says a uh, 36-year-old woman uh, seeks to look nonchalant and, um, and must be hospitalized from exhaustion. <laughs> right? Uh, because you've got to have your, you've got to have your shirt just so pressed. And you have to have your hair just so disheveled. And you have to, you know, you have to not try being very sophisticated and cool and chic. And, uh, and yeah, if you think this happens without trying, you're wrong. (laughs) And it's exhausting. And we're all exhausted, but, but that's not the same with Israel's God. Look at verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. For even to your old age I am he. And to to the gray hairs I will carry you, and I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. See, this God does not bear you down, but he carries you. He's made you. He sustains you. He will carry you. And at the end, he will save you. Because he is utterly unique. He is utterly unique. And so you cannot say that all gods, all religions are the same. The second thing that you cannot say is you cannot say, uh, or the other thing that this means is that you have to accept God as he is. And not as you want him to be. Look at verses 6 and 7. 6 and 7 talk about crafting idols. It says, Those who lavish gold from the person weigh out silver in the scales. They hire a goldsmith, and then he makes it into a god. And then they fall down and they worship. And they lift it to their shoulders and they carry it and they set it in its place and it stands there. And it cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Now, we look at this today, and most of us think this is totally irrelevant, because I'm guessing that many, most of you this week or this past year did not like go contract a craftsman to make uh, an amulet that you could bow down and pray. Maybe some of you did, but most of you probably didn't. And you say, this doesn't have to do anything with me today. I mean, how does this have to do with me? But listen, any time we edit God... And fashion him into an image that we like. We are doing this. Of course, the great, um, the great illustration of this, which comes from, uh, I mean, this, I'm about to go really high culture on you, so just prepare. I'm talking about Ricky Bobby, Talget, Dega Knights. Okay. Will Farrell and John Riley are sitting there at a table and they are about to pray for their meal. And Will Farrell is going to pray, and as he starts praying, he prays to the sweet little baby infant Jesus. And they stop and they're like, Why are you praying to the sweet little baby? And he's like, Well, that's how I like to picture him. And then the conversation goes like this Will Farrell says, I like Christmas baby Jesus best. So that's who I pray to. Eight pounds, six ounces, baby Jesus, all snugly there in your diapers, in your crib, yet omnipotent. <laughs> and then John Riley says, well, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo shirt, t- in a tuxedo t-shirt, because it says, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party. 
Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party too. Or I like to picture Jesus as a figure skater. He comes out wearing like a white outfit and he does interpretive uh, ice dances of my life's journey. And it's this like hilarious scene that you're crying at the end of it because it's so funny. Until, until you realize this hilarious scene um, that at the end of it, the joke's on you. Christians. Because they're making fun of how we craft Jesus into whatever image we want him to be. And they see how farcical it is. You know, any time we elevate one characteristic of God above all the others, any time we try to cut parts out of God's revelation that we don't like, we are doing this. We are having our own little sweet baby Jesus. Well, my Jesus would never do that, and my God would never do that. And I like to think of God like this. But is that who God is? In um, Nadia Bolz Weber's new book on sexuality, which I can't recommend to you, uh, I don't think it's good at all, um, because she's a Lutheran theologian who's forgotten the law. But in that book, um, she gives this illustration of someone who uh, who goes through their Bible and they start cutting out literally all the verses about sexuality that they don't like. And she kind of puts this forward as a model. How is this not crafting God into whoever we want God to be? See, we still fashion our own personal gods. We just use different material. And for most Americans, we like to picture this Americanized Jesus, kind of a John Wayne, who is part genie, part fan club, one part financial advisor, one part American patriot, and several parts therapist. Voltaire said, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Two chapters earlier, when it talks about uh, Israel crafting, our people crafting idols, it says that they craft them into the beauty of a man. And most of the time, that's what we do. We craft God into an image of us. So we think that God necessarily hates who we hate. And he loves what we love. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that, that people's God tends to look a lot like them? I mean, have you ever noticed that, for instance, the, uh, the Republican God tends to be a um, individualistic capitalist who is pro-personal like, uh, responsibility. And the Democratic God tends to be a, a communal socialist who is uh, all pro, all sin is corporate sin and systemic sin. And have you ever noticed that white people's Jesus is usually white? Like... We craft God in our own image where he looks like we look and he thinks like we think. And, and that's not who God is. When Moses approaches the burning bush and God reveals his name, he says, I am who I am, not I am whoever you would want me to be.
And so, so we can't treat God like, like the food court where we decide, I really like the burritos over here, but the fries over here, and I'm going to mix them together. And God is not a Build-A-Bear. And so here's the question. How do you know if you have crafted God in your own image and likeness? Well, let's just ask the question. Does he look a lot like you and think a lot like you and have your priorities? Does he ever disagree with you or offend you? Because if if God never disagrees with you or offends your sensibilities, then it's probably that you have projected yourself onto him. Because a relationship means that he's an independent being that you have to be confronted with, like any relationship. See, this God is unique. He says, I am God and there is no other. There is none like me. And so we can't craft him into however we want to make him. The third thing I think that this implies, this uniqueness of God implies, that strikes at our modern sensibilities is this. It means that it means that we have to find God and we can only find God where and how he has made himself known. Christianity makes this audacious claim. Absolutely audacious. It says that the only God, the unique God, has uniquely revealed his salvation. That he has actually uniquely revealed it. Look in verse 13. I will bring near my salvation. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in in Zion. That says, I will put my salvation in Zion. And we understand what that means in chapter 59 when he says, a redeemer will come to Zion. And you know what? 2,000 years ago, that redeemer came. His name is Jesus. And he said, I am the way and the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And first Timothy says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And if we want to know God, we have to know there. We have to go there. That's what Christians have always said. That's what the first chapter of Hebrews says. He is God's final and ultimate word. But of course we say, well, wait, why do I have to go there? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, this is a Western religion and this is for Western people. Why do I have to go there? I mean, I'm not Western. But let's just set the record straight really clearly. Christianity is not a Western thing. It started in the Middle East. And let's set the record really clearly. Christianity first started to spread in Africa and India. So it's not a European thing, first and foremost. Though it did go through Europe, and that's where we inherited it from. Christianity is not any of those things. Christianity is a global thing because the unique, global, one true God in all the earth revealed himself. But he revealed himself in a particular place at a particular time. Why? Well, the thing that has helped me most in understanding this is reading a guy named Leslie Newbigin, a British missionary to India. And Newbigin, uh, when I was reading Newbigin, what Newbigin notes is this. He notes that one of the biggest problems in the world that we have is division. We are a people in conflict. 
And you don't have to look just at our political scene or our national scene or our international scene. You can go to your kids' lunchrooms to see this. Division and conflict is a deep, deep problem within the human, like our human experience. But if God were to reveal himself to each of us just individually, uniquely, then what does that do to solve the problem of our division? We still remain monads, individually related to God. But if God reveals himself at a particular place, at a particular time, in the form of a particular man who was of a particular height and a particular weight and lived a particular amount of years and climbed a particular tree and died a very particular death and had a glorious and unique resurrection, then guess what? We all have to go there. And we all meet there at the foot of the cross. And God dissolves our divisions there. This is why God has revealed himself in this way. This is why God has come to save us in this way. And so that we might come to the foot of the cross and have our divisions melted. And so that God's salvation would actually deal with all of our human problems, including one of our biggest problems, our disconnection, our strife, our enmity with one another. But notice where he is. He's not on top of the mountain. He is not on top of the mountain. He came down low. And so you might climb the top of the mountain, but guess what? That's not where he is. He came all the way down. You see, this message is not about, the Christian message is not about an ascent to God, but about his descending to us. Christianity does not point you to a path to climb, but it points you to a place where he descended. He descended all the way down into the depths of our misery and sin. And he was weighed down there all the way to the depths of the hell that we have created. He came all the way down that he might lift us up. See, Christianity is not about us seeking God. It's about God seeking us. It's not about us finding God. It's about God finding us. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians, now that you have come to know God, he goes, or rather come to be known by him. See, this is the gift of grace. That he brings his salvation to us. Look at verse 13. I bring near my righteousness. And you have to accept it. And receive it there. And we all need it. We all need it because we are all striving up a path. And we don't call it righteousness. We call it what David Zoll calls, I mentioned earlier, enoughness. If we could just be enough, if I could be enough of a parent, if I could be enough of a teacher, man, I was struggling with this this weekend. We had funeral services and they were hard time with family. It's hard. How do you be? How do you know how to be? I mean, as a pastor, it's like my whole, am I present enough? Am I emotional enough? Do I have enough words to say? And it's just like. Enough, 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 enough. And I say that 
I say that because, like, that's not my experience. And, I mean, that's not just my experience. That's all of our experiences. We all experience this in so many different ways. Am I enough of a spouse? And it weighs us down and it burdens us. And if you come out of this thinking, oh, I'm going to go tell Kyle that he's enough, you miss the point. (laughs) This isn't about that. This is about us together, exhausting ourselves, seeking enough. And God saying, you are not. You are not enough. I am. I am who I am, and I am enough, and I have brought my righteousness to you. I have brought you Jesus, who is wisdom and sanctification and righteousness and enoughness. Won't you accept him and know that you are loved? This is the unique God who has revealed himself in a unique way. And he carries you. Fall into his arms now. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.